kind of a message this evening is a disciple's reception, a disciple's reception. We've been in a, kind of a mini-series within the book of John on discipleship, as Jesus Christ is speaking with his disciples, speaking to his disciples, instructing his disciples, uh, specifically focusing in now on his disciples. We've talked about many different things. We've talked about a disciple's comfort, a disciple's hope, a disciple's strength. We've talked about these various aspects of discipleship. goes well in hand with what we're learning in Sunday school. And this evening we're talking about a disciple's reception. You know, you and I as disciples of Jesus Christ, we talked about this morning, are distinct from the world around us. In this world, people like us, people that believe on Jesus Christ, people who we, we would call born-again Christians, are a vast minority. And while we do not, and we must not have an us-versus-them mentality, an us-versus-them idea where we are pitting ourselves against the world around us, we do recognize that we are not like this world, as the scriptures tell us we are not of this world. First Peter tells us that we are strangers, that we are foreigners upon this earth. And this understanding should inform our expectations as we consider the reception that we would expect to receive from the world around us. And this is what Jesus teaches his disciples here in John 15, verses 16. Through 27. So this evening, as we look into the Word of God, we're going to see three insights. Three insights into the reception which the disciples of Jesus Christ, many of us in this room being disciples of Jesus Christ, the reception which we can expect in this world. The reception which the disciples of Jesus Christ can expect in this world. And the first insight into this expectation that we'll see is in verses 16 and 17. The reason for rejection. The reason for rejection. In verses 16 and 17 of John 15, we see a tie-in between that which Jesus Christ taught in John 15, 1 through 15, about him being the vine and weaving the branches, and that which he's going to teach in verses 18 through 27. These verses are tied so closely, I was hesitant to break them up. I was considering that doing a two-part sermon or whatever the case may be, but I felt comfortable because of verses 16 and 17 as these hinge verses of breaking this up into two sermons, which is good because we wouldn't be here all night if I tried to preach all of John 15 in one sermon. They're very important, both to the context which we saw in John 15, 1 through 15, as well as the context of verses 18 through 27. These two verses, verses 16 and 17, let's read them together. Jesus says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go forth and bring, excuse me, go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Really, this is a great summary of that which we've seen, not just in the first 15 verses of John 15, but in John 14 and John 13 as well. Jesus Christ here reminds the disciples of three important elements of discipleship. Three important elements of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. First, in verse 16, he says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you for what? That ye should go and bring forth fruit. 
We, as disciples of Jesus Christ, are chosen to bear fruit. God has established his purpose in each disciple and for each disciple. Now, we recall from last week, his words here, Jesus Christ's statement, should not be interpreted regarding salvation itself. In the sense that men were chosen to be recipients of eternal life or were chosen not to be recipients of eternal life. Rather, Jesus Christ is stating that by virtue of their choice to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, they have become the chosen for the purpose of fruit-bearing. And specifically, that this fruit which they bear should remain. Therefore, if you are a born-again believer in this room, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you have been chosen by God to be a fruit-bearing Christian. Now, this is entirely consistent with what we see in false teachings throughout the Gospels. Ephesians 1 verse 5 tells us that we are predestinated unto the adoption of children. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us that we were created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. 1 Peter 1 2 tells us that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we, as God's people, have been chosen to obey Him, have been chosen to follow Him, have been chosen to walk in His steps, have been chosen to bear fruit. The first thing Jesus mentions in verse 16 about the disciple. The second foundational aspect of discipleship, he says, whatsoever, the, the second half of verse 16, that whatsoever he shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So we have been chosen to bear fruit. We have also been given access to the Father through the Son. We've talked about this many times as well. That as these disciples come to God in Jesus' name, they will receive the petitions of their heart. And as we mentioned way back in John 14, we were preaching on this teaching that Jesus Christ um, gave on praying in his name. That does not simply mean invoking the moniker Jesus. It does not simply mean saying the five-letter name Jesus in our prayer. It means that we come to God, conform to his character, conform to his will, and as we do so, he hears us and he delights in answering our prayers. Chosen unto fruit bearing as disciple. Access to the Father through the Son as disciple. The third thing he says here, verse 17, he reiterates his great commandment. These things I command you, that ye love one another. These were the words that he, he spoke in John 13, 34 and 35. He said in these verses that all men would know that they are Christ's disciples if they love one another. And as we think about these three statements that Jesus makes in verses 16 and 17, it really is the foundation upon which all discipleship is built. By these statements, we understand our purpose, to bear fruit, our enablement, prayer in the Spirit, and our method, by loving one another. Yet these three elements do not form the exclusive foundation for discipleship. They also lay a foundation for the reception upon which this world, upon, or the reception of which we can expect from this world, excuse me. And that is, for a bloodline, rejection. 
Say, Pastor, that sounds really harsh. I know it does. But let's look at Jesus Christ's teaching in verses 18 through 27. We've seen the reason for rejection. Let's look at the reality of rejection. There's little doubt that most of the people under the sound of my voice today have had numerous experiences with a doctor. I've had numerous experiences with, with a doctor. I know many of you, some of you just recently have had experiences with a doctor. Perhaps a fewer number have been in the circumstance where they have been to the doctor because there's been something wrong, but they don't quite know what that something is, and so they need medical testing. And you know, I've found as I've gone to the doctor with medical needs, and I don't quite know what's going on, I don't quite know what's wrong, but there's something wrong, and I need the doctor to help me figure out what it is. I found that really, at the end of the day, there are only two types of doctors. As I'm being poked and prodded, and my blood's being siphoned, and all of these tests are being done, there's going to be two types of doctors that I might come in contact with. There's going to be the doctor that tells you exactly what he's thinking. Everything that's running through his mind, he's going to tell you. My brother-in-law is this way. He is a neurosurgeon, he's a neurologist. And when I was having uh, some problems a little while back, uh, it ended up being some problems related to indigestion and such, I called him up and I said, hey, these are my symptoms, what do you think? And he started running the gamut of all of the terminal diseases that I might have because he's got all of these things floating through his mind all day, and by the end of the conversation, I was, uh, I was ready to, you know, I needed to write my will, I needed to get my affairs in order, my daughters are going to not have a father, this is not going to be the best of situations, we're going to start looking for a new pastor for legacy. This, uh, the, the, the list was, was growing as to what I needed to think about after speaking with him. But you know, then there are those other doctors where they do hours of tests, they poke, they prod, they, they do all of this, and you can barely squeeze up, we'll just have to see when the tests come back out of them, right? You can't get anything out of them. You leave the doctor's office no more informed than when you came in. You have no idea what's going on. They haven't told you anything. The tests, you're going to get them in the mail, and they're going to have all sorts of numbers, and who knows what those numbers are going to mean, and at the end it's going to say, okay. Okay. I guess I'm okay. Two types of doctors, right? I've experienced both. It'd be nice if there were some balance between them every once in a while. You know, whichever one you prefer depends on your personality. Which one is necessary at the time depends on the doctor's discretion. But in John 15, Jesus Christ determined that it was very important to tell his disciples some things that he had never told them before. In their time with him as disciples, he had withheld some things that they were to expect in the days to come. And it was time now as they are walking from that other room to the Garden of Gethsemane. They are on the route in John 15, 16, and 17. And as they're on their way, it's time for them to hear some things. Now, he's not going to tell them everything, but he is telling them what they can expect as they carry the torch that he's going to pass to them on the day that he dies. His first words were these. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hated you. Now we've talked about this word hate many times now, the biblical de definition of hate. 
The term does not necessarily imply emotional hatred or a great loathing, but rather it is when we take something and we place it lower in priority or favor. That's what this word hate means. Now it can accompany negative emotions. Negative emotions can be a part of that lack of favor, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And so rather than interpreting this to mean that everyone in the world is going to hate our guts, as we would define hate today, what we need to understand is that when Jesus Christ speaks of the world hating disciples of Jesus Christ, it could speak of those, and there are many out there, are there not, who dislike us greatly, who would speak against us, who emotionally are angry against believers, but it could also simply speak of those who reject the believers and the message of the gospel, who place our message, the message that we are relaying of the gospel of Jesus Christ, lower in priority and favor than other things in their lives. Now, as Jesus Christ says these things, we see two conditional statements. You'll notice verse 18 and verse 19 both begin with the phrase, if. In verse 18, we see that Jesus Christ assumes this to be a reality. If the world hates you, and he already said that the world would, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. The second conditional, the second if, he assumes to be untrue. That these disciples will not be of the world, but rather they will be born again of the Spirit. If you are of the world, then he says, I'm assuming that you're not of the world. The world will love his own. But because you are not of the world, I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, for this reason, the world hates you. The world rejects you. The world places you lower in faith. And so the assurance that Jesus Christ is giving to his disciples in verse 18 and 19 is this. When the world rejects your message, when it places your lifestyle, your message, the way you live, the way you think, all of those things that make us distinct as Christians, when they place that lower in priority or value than their own priorities, their own desires, their own pride, lust, those sorts of things, rest assured, Jesus says, they rejected Jesus Christ long before they rejected you. They rejected Jesus Christ long before they rejected you. I'd like to put this statement in perspective a little bit. This past Thursday, as every Thursday, we went door knocking. Door knocking is always an adventure. Regardless of where, it's always an adventure. Buffalo has been a little bit more of an adventure than some of the other places I've ever done it. You come across some polite people. You come across some not polite people. A very few receptive people. Sometimes the person will listen to the gospel as you give it, or uh, the presentation of our church as you give that, and they'll say, no, thank you. So, you're walking up through the door, and they look at you and say, turn around, I don't even want to, I don't even want to hear what you have to say. Some will take the flyer, other ones won't. But you know, when we face rejection, we can even bring it closer to home. Those family members that are unbelievers that you have, and you've told them of their need for salvation, you presented the gospel, and they said, no thank you. What Jesus Christ is teaching here, when a neighbor rejects the gospel, when a family member rejects the gospel, 
is not that they are inherently rejecting you, but they are rejecting the gospel. They are rejecting the message of Jesus Christ. The problem is not with you. The problem is with the message. And we've seen this, haven't we? We see this all over the place. There are 13 denominations in Buffalo. Buffalo is not hurting for religious people. People aren't necessarily offended by religion. What's offensive is the gospel. And so people will be more than happy to hear religious things as long as those religious things don't remind them that they're sinners. As long as those religious things don't remind them that there is a penalty for sin, which if we do not accept Christ as our Savior, we are going to pay one day. They're not rejecting the messenger, they're rejecting the message. If you were of the world, if your message was of the world, if you brought to them the philosophies of the world, the world would love you. But you are not of the world. Jesus Christ said you've been chosen out of the world. Jesus then recounts the words that he spake in John 13, 16, in verse 20. He said, remember the word that I said unto you? Do you remember back then when I told you the servant is not greater than his Lord? If they had persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my sayings, they will keep yours also. In other words, he says, if you are truly my disciple, and you are truly reflecting the word of God in your ministry, if you are truly reflecting the word of God in your speech, if what you are saying is what the Bible is saying, then those that accept you are the ones who have accepted me. And those who reject you are the ones who have rejected me. You're not greater than Jesus Christ. If a person will not be won by the truth of the gospel, he will not be won. You know, we have a tendency in our lives to think of things from an extremely materialistic perspective, even believers. I told you a little bit about this this morning. It's a tendency, at least in my heart, when I walk away from a witnessing opportunity having been rejected by men, to say, you know, if only I had, I had said this differently, if only I had not said that, maybe I would have convinced them. Maybe if I had just framed my argument in a different way that they couldn't have refuted it, maybe it would have convinced them. But you know, Jesus' words here remind us that this really isn't how it works. If they reject the word of God, then even Jesus Christ would not have convinced them. And don't we see this all throughout Christ's ministry? Haven't we seen this all throughout the book of John? That men have seen water turned into wine. Men have seen the multiplying of the bread and the fishes. Men have seen another man raised from the dead. And what did those men do when Lazarus was raised from the dead? They began plotting how they could kill him to silence him. There was nothing that Jesus Christ could do that would convince them because they had rejected the truth. Jesus continues in verses 22 through 24. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hated me hated my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. Now this is a confusing passage. 
This is one of those passages that we talked about in Sunday school this morning where if we don't truly understand what uh, the character of the God that we serve, we can very easily misinterpret this passage. So what is this passage not saying? What is what Jesus is not teaching here? Jesus is not saying that the world had no sin before he came into the world. He is not saying that, that the world had no sin before Jesus uh, was incarnate. He is not saying that the world was without sin before he began working miracles among them. It would seem as though he's saying that from verse 22 and verse 24, but that's not the point he's trying to make. That's not the direction he's going with this conversation. What is Jesus Christ saying? Jesus Christ is saying this. When he came, he, as it were, rescued the truth. He reestablished the truth regarding sin and judgment from the hands of those who had misinterpreted the word of God. You recall the Pharisees, the nation of Israel, had been entrusted with the word of God. God had entrusted them to take it, to live it, and to show the world around them the truth of the word of God. They had failed at that task. The Pharisees had taken the truths of God's word and they had twisted them. They had manipulated them. They had changed them to the point where you could not even find the truth of God's word in their teachings on God's word. And in doing so in manipulating the scriptures, they justified their sin. So these Pharisees would walk around all day with their pride and with their selfishness and with their vanity and with their hypocrisy. And they would do it without any conviction in their heart because they felt as though they were doing it under the justification of the law. You know, they were not. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do. When he came... And when he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he did his great miracles, and he showed them their hypocrisy, and he showed them their pride, and he preached unto them, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He restored the reality of the sin that was in their lives. He restored their consciences to that tender state where they knew that they were sinners. And that's what Jesus Christ is saying here. When he came, he set the record straight. His teachings, as well as his works, proved what was true and corrected the errors that the Jewish leaders had imposed upon the word of God through their misinterpretation. And so, when the law was revived through Jesus Christ, the people who to that point had justified their sin through these false interpretations of the law recognized once again the horrible nature of their own sin the inability that they had to, to be right before God in and of themselves. And they saw the wickedness of their own heart. And so Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. When the light of the world came into the world and manifested their sin, there was no hiding anymore. There was no pretending it wasn't there anymore. It was clear. It was obvious. There was no choice. And every generation since Jesus Christ came into this world through the gospel of Jesus Christ has had no hope for their sin. There has been no justification. There has been no means by which any man can justify his sin through the law because Jesus Christ set the record straight. And that is what he's saying. We see this experience of the law reviving the heart of man happening even today. You know, the Apostle Paul described such an experience in his own life in Romans chapter 7. He said this in verses 9 and 10. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. 
and the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be the death. This is Paul saying at one time, when he was the Pharisee named Saul, he was alive without the law. In other words, the law didn't bother him. It had been misinterpreted to the point where he could do what he was doing without a problem of a of conscience. But he said, when the commandment came, when it was made clear to him, when it was explained, he said, the law revived, and I died. The law became clear to me, and I realized that I was not keeping it. That I had fallen short of God's expectations. That is the power of the gospel. When Paul finally, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, saw the expectations of God, he realized exactly how dead and sin he was. This is what Jesus is saying here. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true. And anything that deviates from the gospel of Jesus Christ is error. And he had left no room for interpretation in his word as to which is which. It is for this cause, Jesus says, that the world hates him. And it is a cause, he says, which is really not a cause at all. Notice in verse 25, Jesus says, But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus quotes here from Psalm 109, verse 3. In the original context of that psalm, King David is speaking about those in his kingdom who hated him. Not for any wrong that he committed against them, but simply because they hated him. They rejected his kingly authority because they wanted to. They had no basis. They had no reason. They hated him without a cause. See, I believe we've all experienced this. Men never really need a reason to reject something, do they? We can always conjure up a reason in our minds to reject something. We get in our minds we don't like something, and that is often enough for us. You see this in the sports world all the time. <laughs> People are loyal to a team or loyal to a player, and then that player does something against the team or leaves to go to another team, and all of a sudden there are, there's great animosity that is formed between these fans and this player or these fans and this team. I remember the great controversy way up here in Minnesota. I was down in Colorado at the time, but way up here in Minnesota some years ago when Brett Favre moved from the Packers to the Vikings. What a terrible day that was for many people. Many fans were alienated. See, we get it in our minds that something is important. We reject something or we accept something, and you can't convince us otherwise. We're really kind of unreasonable people, aren't we? Humans. But you know, for all of that, there is continued hope for those who would reject Christ. Because when Jesus Christ departed, his gospel did not go with him. When he departed, it wasn't game over. He didn't say, okay, I'm leaving and I'm taking all the hope with me. And if you haven't accepted me yet, you're hopeless. You've got nothing left. I'm taking it with me. He didn't say that, did he? Look at verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceeded from the Father, he shall testify of you, and he also shall bear witness, because he have been with me from the beginning. 
his gospel would be left in the hands of his disciples to go and tell. But even his disciples would not be alone. The, 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 the disciples would have the comforter. And when the comforter would come, he would testify of the truth of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. The situation as Jesus defines it then is this. You and I are his disciples. We have been given the privilege and expectation of bearing fruit by loving one another through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It must be our expectation, however, that those who love the world will reject our message. But as Jesus Christ presents this situation, we recognize that our responsibility is not to convince people to accept the message. That's the comforter's responsibility. You and I, we as disciples, are called to demonstrate the truth through good works, by loving one another, and to tell the truth to all who will hear. That's our responsibility. That's the part that is for us. And people will reject it. It is inevitable. Jesus Christ taught it. But it's our challenge. The reason for rejection, the reality of rejection. One final point as we close this evening, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. We're going to jump into chapter 16 here. The reminder regarding rejection. Jesus Christ has something that he wants to remind the disciples about rejection. He doesn't want to leave necessarily on a low note. He's quick to point out the reason why he's telling the disciples these things. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. These things I have spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. That word offended in our King James Bible, in the original language, has the idea of falling away, stumbling. Calling, causing one to lose trust. Now the implication is this. Times are going to get rough for disciples of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is warning these men of what to expect so that when the times do come when things get rough, they will get up and walk away. He's warning them so that they'll remember, oh yeah, our master told us this would happen. So that they don't just throw up their hands and say, this is too hard, I quit. Have you ever wanted to do that? Have you ever been trying to share the gospel? Trying to live the testimony of Jesus Christ? And just said, you know, I'm tired. This is hard. I just want to stop. We read about Jeremiah this morning who throughout his persecution came to a point where he said, I just don't want to preach God's name anymore. And so Jesus tells them in verse 2 that they'll be thrown out of synagogues, the very center of Jewish religious life. Jesus tells them in verse 3 that they will be hunted, that they will be killed, and that those who are doing the killing will think that they are killing these disciples of Jesus Christ in the very name of God. But Jesus is telling them these things now so that when these things do in fact come to pass, they will remember something. They'll remember that Jesus Christ knew it was going to happen. And therefore, this was a part of the plan. This was a part of what Jesus Christ had chosen them to bear. Do you remember at the beginning of the message in chapter 15, verse 16? Jesus Christ says, I have chosen you to bear fruit. 
you were chosen. And this is a part of what Jesus Christ has chosen us to bear. You and I are chosen vessels. By God's grace, we have not yet been in a situation where we have been thrown out of places of worship. We have not been hunted and killed in this country. I thank the Lord for the freedoms that we've been given in this country. I thank the Lord for the relative degree of peace that Christians experience, the lack of persecution that we go through in this country. But you know, we are still chosen disciples of Jesus Christ. These warnings that Jesus Christ gave are just as much a warning to you and to I as they were to those disciples on that day. And perhaps right now, the rejection is a little bit less than being hunted down and killed. Perhaps right now, the rejection is simply hearing a no thank you, or hearing a get off my property, or hearing a, you know, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, I've heard this time and time again, I don't want your religion. But we've been chosen. We've been chosen to face ridicule for our piety and the principles that we live by. We've been chosen to live in such a manner that the world sees us and sees a distinction and might even reject our distinction. We've been chosen to live lives of distinction. We've been chosen to live lives with different priorities. And Jesus warns us it won't necessarily be easy and he warns us so that when the tough times do come, when friends leave, when family disassociates, when doors slam, when contentions arise, he warned us so that we don't walk away. He warned us so that we won't be offended. See, because we are Christ's disciples. We are the bearers of the message that he left with us. And as we look out among the men and women in Buffalo, it's quite clear that there's a lot of work to be done. We need to be doing the work.